All right, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Ooh. That's a weird place to go for the Christmas uh, message, but we will begin in the beginning because if we don't know uh, what we're celebrating, don't worry, we're not going to study the entire Bible today. It'll be a lot quicker than that. But obviously, uh, this time of year, people have a lot of things on their mind, and the Bible may not be one of those. I don't know about you, but that could easily be the case with me. I mean, you're so worried about uh, gifts and people coming over and getting the house ready and the food and all everything that goes along with that, and uh, maybe you don't have anybody to come over, that's a very real possibility as well. So this time of year is uh, not necessarily uh, the Christmas card or the Christmas movie that we might see uh, on TV. It's not exactly perfect for everybody, but uh, nevertheless, it is a obviously a time that is uh, worthy of celebration, and it's definitely worthy of taking some time out of our busy day to look at the Bible to make sure we understand uh, what we are celebrating. And uh, obviously, or most everybody here anyway, we're rather experienced Christians, if you will, <laughs> want to put it nicely. And so we've heard a lot of uh, Christmas messages over the years and that's all good, but I'm not sure if you have noticed in the past, but we're a little bit different <laughs> at uh, Blushing Bible Church. Sometimes we like to study things in detail, and the birth of Christ is one of those that we ought to understand and that we can always understand better because it's not just you know the nativity scene. There's so much more that goes into it than, than Jesus just one day suddenly uh, being born and being laid in a manger, and then, you know, we know the rest of the story. There's, there's a whole lot going on there that is worthy for us to know. In fact, uh, the Old Testament is something that we ought to know in order to understand who Jesus Christ really is. Because the story of the Messiah does not begin in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1. It begins in Genesis chapter 1. And so we'll take a little bit of time and go through some of these things and hopefully come away with a better uh, love for our Lord. Uh, the title of the message this morning is Jesus, the seed of the woman. And he's called, he's could be referred to as the seed of the woman because God promised a long, long time ago that he was going to conquer sin and all of the consequences of sin in this world, and he's going to do it through a person. And that person's name is Jesus Christ, and that's what we uh, want to look into this morning. And it actually all does begin in the book of Genesis. So that's kind of why we were just this past weekend uh, watching a prehistoric history show, and it just a complete joke about the dinosaurs and all of these things that happened 65 million years ago, and they had actual video of these dinosaurs running around. It's quite fascinating, but it's just a complete dream, somebody's dream. The world scoffs at 
the idea of an all-powerful, almighty God before anything was created having a plan for his creation to be saved from the sin that he knew that they were going to do. This is something that the world just cannot, cannot accept. So they invent things like dinosaurs living 65 million years ago and all of these, these kinds of things. But uh, the truth of the matter is that these are facts. That yes, indeed, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God created this world, created you and me, and saved us from ourselves. And that's essentially what we are celebrating today. And, and how the process of how he did it is foundational and important. Even though the world scoffs at these things, we don't, we don't need to apologize for what our Bibles say. It is, it is God's word and it is, it is the truth. And so that's what we want to study this morning for just a just a little while. And the whole, you know, we're we're kind of can easily just say things, you know, Christianese, you know, Jesus is the savior and these kinds of things. But if we don't understand why we actually need a savior, then the whole question of Jesus is just kind of can get muddled very quickly. I mean, is he just a prophet? Is he somebody who was uh, wise. He was just a really great person who lived a long time ago, and so we ought to try to model our lives after him. Or is he what the Bible says, God in human flesh who is rescuing us from our sins and the consequences of those sins? And the fact of the matter is that he, he is the latter. And God promised when the first people came into this world, that he was going to do this for us. So the very uh, premise begins as, coincidentally enough, I had no idea we were going to sing that uh, Christmas carol there at the end, but it mentions in the last verse that God is the one who created the world, and he's also the one who is going to save us from our sins, or has saved us from our sins. So, and so the story of Christ in the crib begins all the way back in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created humans, a direct creation of God. The first two people who lived on this planet didn't come into this world like you and I did. They were created directly <laughs> by God. From, uh, they weren't created from nothing, He'd, from the dust of the earth. The Bible says he created people, but the world did come into existence from nothing. That's the uh, term we may be familiar with, ex nihilo, that is stated. There was nothing before God spoke it into existence. There were no people on this planet before God directly created Adam and Eve. That's what Genesis chapter 2 says is all about, you know, all of the animals and the stars and everything is just kind of gives cursory uh, mention there in Genesis chapter one, very quick moving from day to day in creation. But then when it comes to people, they get an entire chapter that's dedicated to them in Genesis, exactly, Genesis chapter two, uh, <laughs> that talks about uh, the creation of Adam and specifically, and how Eve 
was created. And notice in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 31, uh, Genesis 2 is kind of a look back, if you will, at day 6 of creation when God created Adam and Eve. But at the end of that, uh, Genesis chapter 1 in verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So after creation was finished on day six, no reason to believe anything other than 24-hour literal days, according to the Bible, uh, at least anyway, we ought to be believing the word of God more than the word of Bill Nye. Just saying. Uh, I, I don't know who you put your faith in. I trust the Bible more than, more than him. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So there was no, there was no sin. There was no death. There was no war. There was no COVID-19. There was no governments to clamp down on. There was nothing that was bad at Genesis 1.31, it was very good. Not only was it good, it was very good. There was no sin and no consequences of sin at this particular point in time, six days in. And that includes man. Adam and Eve were living without sin, something that we, oh, I guess I don't know about you, but I personally find very hard to comprehend and it, that's almost, that it's not even almost, it is a dream to live in a world that doesn't have sin. That was their, the state that they found themselves in. But then Genesis chapter 3 comes along, and I have no idea how long it is between Genesis 2 or Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3. I'm not, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. So we can guess it was five minutes or it was five years maybe or five months. I don't know. It was probably a fairly short amount of time. Uh, if I had to guess, less than nine months at any rate. Uh, there were no other people when this happened. So that's uh, a guess, but I have no idea. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? And of course, we're familiar with what transpires after that. Eve takes the fruit, not necessarily an apple, even though that's the way it's always pictured uh, popularly for us. Uh, and she gives it to Adam and he eats it. The Kind of the, the text implies that Adam was right there with her as, e, as Satan was deceiving Eve and leading her into sin. That's why the sin is Adam's fault because God originally gave the commands to not eat from this particular tree, of course, to Adam. And he ate it anyway. And there, are, there were great consequences because of that. Notice Genesis 3.17 when God begins to lay out the consequences to the three actors who participated in this rebellion against God, Satan, Adam, and Eve, 
He says to Adam in Genesis 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and not me, is implied, God, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice all of that last part of Genesis 3.19 is part of the consequences of sin. You're going to die because you did this one silly, simple act that seems so trivial to us. You just ate a piece of fruit that God told him not to eat, and now he's going to die? The implication is that he was created to live forever. Created to live forever in a world without sin with his wife and his children and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren forever. Incredible. Uh, Incredible to think about. But now that you have disobeyed the word of God, you are destined for this. You are destined for toil eating by the sweat of your face and returning to the ground from which you came, you're going to die. And this has been passed on to each and every one of us. So we now all face this. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So it's kind of both ideas are being mentioned there. We're all sinners. We all would have done exactly the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We all would have sinned if we were in that situation. But also, we have a sin nature that is within us, that has been passed down to each and every single person on this planet. So we are all doomed exactly the same way that Adam was. Romans 5.17, Paul goes on and says, for if the transgression of the one, Adam, for if by the transgression of the one, who is Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So sin comes into the world through the first Adam. Sin is dealt with through the second Adam, but I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Death is the result of this sin. That's why we need a Savior, because we are all in the same boat as Adam and Eve were. We have a sin nature within us. Something changed inside of Adam after he had sinned. The world was no longer very good. He was no longer very good Something changed within him, and he then passed that on to each and every single person who lives 
in this world. But notice if we go back to Genesis 3.15, we sort of uh, skipped the most important part of this entire message, that God made a promise to Satan. Satan is the one who led Adam and Eve into sin. I think the first, the true first act of sin was committed by Satan, not by uh, Adam. Uh, but Satan is angelic, so there's a different, different set of consequences there. Adam, of course, is the first person who sinned. But Satan had fallen before Adam sinned because he's leading them into sin. Pretty clear from Genesis chapter 3, and there's a consequence for that. Notice Genesis 3.15, God speaking to Satan. Uh, Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Here comes the key, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That phrase there, seed of the woman, is very uh, curious. It's kind of a strange promise. We might be very familiar uh, with this portion of the Bible and just kind of read over that because uh, typically we read it in the context of understanding the whole, the whole story there. Uh, and and it it's easy for us to kind of miss the idea that oh wait a second seed of the woman that is that's an interesting promise because uh, the man is the one who has the seed if we you know want to get into the biology of the thing the woman doesn't have the seed so this is right from the very beginning something strange is going on here that God is promising. Uh, It seems to be foreshadowing some kind of special birth for this person who is going to crush the head of Satan. That's what is promised there. The seed of the woman is going to bruise you, Satan, on the head. That's a death blow, if you will. Uh, You are going to be crushed. You are going to be dealt with finally and fully, and it's going to happen through this seed of the woman. This is sometimes called the proto-evangelium, the first giving of the gospel, if you will. The first giving of the good news. Yes, sin is in the world, but it is going to be dealt with. That is very good. That is very good news. There are consequences for sin laid out for both the man and the woman. Those are going to be dealt with in this seed of the woman. And so when we leave this opening scene of creation, if you will, the rest of the Old Testament is kind of laying out how God is going to fulfill this promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, all the way in the beginning. That's what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament isn't... uh, it shouldn't be categorized as, oh, well, that's the, that's the Jewish part. I'd, I like the Christian part in the New Testament. I, you know, that's the part that, that interests me. That's what's written for me. That's just the wrong way to look at it. Uh, 
this whole book. Jesus doesn't come into existence. Paul has nothing to say to us if what is in the Old Testament isn't the truth and isn't laying the foundation. That's why the writers of the New Testament spend so much time quoting the Old Testament because it's the foundation for what they're talking about. It is the very foundation for what we believe. So this seed of the woman is one of the promises that is really fascinating to trace throughout the entirety of Scripture because that's essentially what the Old Testament is about. How is this seed of the woman going to come into the world? And God gives us many, many details about this person, about the seed of the woman, so that we can't miss it when he comes. That's why it is laid out in so much excruciating detail in the Old Testament, so that the Jewish people are without excuse when this person is born and does the things that the Old Testament Hebrew Bible says he is going to do. They are without excuse. And one of the first places, actually, that we see this uh, promise being made is in Genesis chapter 9, just a few pages over. But a whole lot of history has taken place by this time, like uh, the world being filled with people and a worldwide flood and everyone essentially dying except for eight people, Noah his wife, his three sons, and their wives are the only people who survive this worldwide flood. And then God, after the flood is over, there's a promise made to one of the sons of Noah. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And to Shem, he says in Genesis 9, 27, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. But there's our English Bibles kind of don't do it justice. And if we just read that one verse, it doesn't uh, do it justice either. Typically, pronouns refer to the closest noun. In this case, that's it's not, that's why I said typically. That's not always the case. Notice Genesis. 926. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God, or blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. If we just uh, put a capital H on that him in Genesis 927, it's actually referring to God. Let the Lord, the God of Shem, dwell in his tents. It's a way of saying that this seed of the woman is actually going to come through the line of Shem. God is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. He is the, the father of the Semites, if you will. And that's who the Israelites come from. Abraham was a descendant of Shem. God chose him specifically because he wanted the Savior, the seed of the woman, to come through a particular line of people that he is directly dealing with. 
That's why he didn't just create, or just didn't pick some random nation. No, he started over new with Abraham. I'm going to make a new nation out of you, Abraham, and I'm going to do it. And you're going to have a miraculous son. And then he's going to have sons. And they're going to have more and more sons. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And this seed of the woman, the Messiah, the promised one, is going to come from your people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. One of your 12 sons, Jacob, is going to be specifically chosen to be the line through which the seed of the woman is going to come. Genesis 49 uh, describes that to us. Again, moving right along. See, I told you we weren't going to study the whole Bible. Uh, Genesis 49.10, at the end of, of Jacob's life, he's blessing his sons. He says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This Messiah is going to come from your line, Judah. You are going to be the one. And further down the line, a a boy by the name of David comes along. God makes promises to David. One of those is that your kingdom is going to last forever. One of your seed is going to be the one who rules over this world. You can read about that in the book of uh, 2 Samuel and chapter 7. And so this seed is going to have a specific lineage, and you're going to be able to trace it. In fact, all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, you can trace this lineage of this particular person who is going to be the seed of the woman. And he's going to be God in human flesh, according to the scriptures. Micah 5.2 makes that pretty clear. If we go, well, I guess I have it on my sheet. This is the one from our uh, scripture reading in the book of Matthew. We saw that the Pharisees, the scribes, they all knew where this Messiah was going to be born when they were quizzed by uh, Herod as to where he would be born. Notice the leader of Israel. He didn't know. (laughs) Kind of tells you the state of the Israelite people. They weren't really uh, on the ball all that much. Their ruler didn't even know where the Messiah was supposed to come from. But their rulers did. And they say in Micah 5.2, or in Matthew, they quoted Micah 5.2 that says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There's only one being, one individual that is eternal into eternity past. We all are going to live forever as humans. We've been created to live forever, but my forever started on uh, August 1st, 1969. I, I have a beginning point. God doesn't have a beginning point. He, he has been in existence forever. So this can only refer to God. God's goings are from eternity 
past. So this one who's going to be born in Bethlehem has always existed, and only God has always existed. So this seed of the woman has to be God in human flesh. And he's going to be David's Lord. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. Jesus quoted that Psalm to the Pharisees when they were questioning whether or not he could possibly be the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah. Uh, And Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to them. David said to my Lord, you are my Lord, essentially. And so this one is going to be far superior to David. He's going to be God. You are my Lord, David says to him. You are my God. That, that term Lord in the Old Testament is Yahweh, meaning eternal one. Your goings forth are from eternity past. You are eternal and you are my Lord. David is saying in Psalm 110, only God is eternal from eternity past. This seed is going to be God in human flesh. The seed will be born of a virgin. He's not going to be born the same way that you and I are. That, that the story of Joseph being obedient to the Lord in that in that circumstance, uh, obviously, it, it causes a response in me because it is, it is uh, unquestionable, undying allegiance to the Lord to put yourself in that position. You know, in the, in the modern world in which we live in, uh, we just kind of slough these things off. You know, oh, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, sure, I'll marry her. It's a, a little bit different circumstance uh, in those days when your entire life depends on you being accepted by the quote-unquote religious community. And Joseph said, you know what? I don't care. God has told me to obey in this instance, and I will do it. Uh, because, and he was, I'm sure, familiar with his Bible. Modern day scholars like to pick on Isaiah 7.14, which is kind of strange to me. And they want to make the claim, there's even been entire translations of the Bible that kind of poo-hoo the idea that in Isaiah, uh, God was promising that the seed of the woman would be born to a virgin. And obviously that's impossible, humanly speaking. And that, that's the whole point. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 is not saying that a young woman is going to have a baby. Is that a sign? No, that's not a sign. If everyone were here, uh, we would have several babies here this morning. So we have a lot of young women who are having babies. In fact, most every one of us is the result of a young woman having a baby. Maybe your mom was older. I don't know. Mine was pretty young when I was born. Uh, And the result of a young woman having a baby, that's not a sign of anything. A woman who is a virgin having a baby is a whole nother matter. That is a sign that something special is going on. And that's exactly what takes place in Isaiah 7, 14. God is promising that this seed of the woman would be born to a virgin. 
And we won't take the time to go through that entire passage. Maybe one of these years we will. But Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we find out uh, from the book of Matthew that that word Emmanuel means God is with us. We don't have to have manual, uh, Matthew to tell us that. That's what the word means in Hebrew. God is with us. But the New Testament confirms this fact that Jesus, in fact, was born to a virgin. So there really isn't any question about what's going on in the book of Isaiah. If, we're, if we believe what our Bibles say, at any rate, we don't have to have this debate with people. Well, what does the Hebrew term mean there? Does that really mean virgin or can it just be a young woman? And all? I, I don't know. I don't particularly care because the New Testament makes it very, very clear what was happening there. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, uh, Greek term Parthenos, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Parthenos only means one thing. There's not two meanings there. And it means a person, a woman who has not had a relation with a man. This has only happened one time in history. Dr. Luke, he was a doctor. He writes about this. He reinforces it. He knows what these terms mean. And he reinforces the fact that the seed of the woman was born to a virgin. There was uh, a special birth took place. And that's the only way that it could happen, as a matter of fact, because we've already read about how sin comes to people through Adam. We read about that in, in Genesis or Romans chapter 5. And so Jesus was not born the same way, not conceived the same way that you and I were, because he does not, did not have a sin nature passed to him from his father. His father is a heavenly father, the Holy Spirit, who does not have a sin nature. He was conceived in Mary, not the same way you and I are. And that is why he is referred to as the seed of the woman, because his birth was going to be different. And Jesus, of course, in fact, is the seed. The genealogies prove this. That's why our uh, two of our gospels, well, only one of the gospels actually begins with uh, a genealogy. And this is the danger of, uh, well, I don't want to pick on the Gideons, but the Gideon Bible, for one, it's the New Testament with the Psalms and the Proverbs only in it, and you give that to somebody, and they go to who has no clue about the Bible or anything that's going on, and they, oh, well, let's start reading this like we do every other book that we get. Matthew 1 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And we get to about verse 2, and what is going on here? I don't want to read this anymore. 
shut the book and put it away. But the fact of the matter is that this is Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. His audience knows about genealogies. That's very important to Jewish people, what family they come from. And so when he starts this way, he's making a point. This man, Jesus, is the God-man, and he is the one who has been promised to us to come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to David, and he traces it, uh, traces Jesus' lineage through Joseph. Luke's is a little bit different. He goes all the way from Adam and uh, most scholars would agree, and I agree with them, that he is actually tracing Mary's lineage in Luke's gospel. That's why there are some differences there in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Jesus, the seed of the woman, has a specific genealogy, and guess what? It matches perfectly with what the Old Testament tells us. And this virgin birth is fulfilled, as we've already mentioned. Uh, Luke 1, 26 through 28 makes that very clear. Uh, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to you, to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now we can kind of uh, think about that the way, you know, we might say, oh, God bless, you know, these kinds of things. The Lord be with you and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think the angel Gabriel there is saying, the Lord is with you. He's in you. <laughs> this baby that you're carrying is, in fact, the Lord. And, uh, conceived as a virgin, as Matthew says, Luke says. And the, the seed of the woman, fast-forwarding, solved the sin problem. And for more confirmation that Jesus is the seed, Galatians 3.16 makes that very clear, that he is, in fact, the seed of the woman, Ah, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's so much easier when I just print all of these things out. Galatians 3.16. Uh, well, beginning in verse 15, Paul says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. And to his seed, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul confirms that Jesus is the seed of the woman, just as God promised to Abraham. And we often read that, those promises to Abraham as uh, and it is true that you're going to have many descendants. He does say that your descendants will be as the stars of the sky. But there are other times when that promise is more specific. You, you from your descendants is going to come the descendant. The promised one is going to come 
through you. And that is what uh, Paul is pointing out there to the, to the Galatians who wanted to kind of create their own religion, their own way to be right with God. No, Paul is saying the only way to be right with God is faith in the seed, faith in the promised one, not through your own works, but through the work, trusting in the work that God has done for us. And in fact, this seed of the woman became sin for us. Paul tells the Corinthians, if ever there was a group of believers who needed to hear this, it was the Corinthians. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So not only did Jesus step out of eternity and come in and live in this world and kind of be in a dirty barn and these kinds of things when he was born and just live among us. No, it's much worse. <laughs> it's actually much worse. He became sin on our behalf. Not that he was sinful, but God made him sin and put him on the cross so that he could pay the penalty for sin, not so that he could be great. He's already great. He made it, he did that so that you could be great and I could be great. It's uncomprehensible, the things that God has done for us. He did this so that we could be made righteous. People who were his enemies, people who had sinned against him. He loves us so much that he became, not only did he become sin for us, but he did it for our benefit, the very ones who had sinned against him. And he doesn't want us to earn it. He doesn't want us to earn the righteousness. He doesn't want us to try to earn the righteousness. He doesn't want us to set a bunch of, uh, follow a bunch of rules and regulations like coming to church on Christmas Day, uh, even when it's on a Sunday. And these kinds of things. He doesn't want us to follow a bunch of rules and regulations. He wants us to believe in him, trust in him. And of course, there are many, many, many other proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, John wrote an entire book about it, about all of the miracles or a select few actually of the miracles that Jesus performed that prove that he is the Messiah, that he is the seed of the woman. However, his book calls on us to believe in him. The miracles aren't the emphasis. Jesus is the emphasis in what he did for us. And God wants us to trust in him, to believe in this Messiah, believe in this seed of the woman who was promised way back in Genesis 3, 15. Trust in what he did for us. Trust, in fact, that he is God, for one. That's a, that's a necessity. That's a necessary part of the gospel that this seed of the woman is, in fact, God in human flesh. Jesus himself said that. Jesus said in John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So if there's any denomination or any person who's trying to tell you 
that Jesus isn't God, but oh, we still ought to follow him, but he's not God. Quote that verse to him. Because that person is going to die in their sins unless they believe that Jesus is God. And he is the only way to have salvation. Faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Faith in the one who stepped out of eternity, came into this world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and sacrificed himself on the cross. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There aren't many paths to get here. You know, I was driving home on Thursday night, big wreck on the highway. Oh, no, don't worry. I can just get off. Siri told me to do it. Uh, Just get off the highway, go a different way to get to your destination. Salvation isn't like that. There's no closed highway to heaven. There's an open highway and it is through the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the only way. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The seed of the woman is our only hope and our only path to a life, to life the way that God presented it to be, the way that God wanted it to be, the way that God created it to be. Way back in Genesis 1.31, saw everything that he did and it was very good and God is dwelling with humanity. That is the end goal that God is accomplishing in this world. And it is accomplished through the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. And he just begs us to trust in him. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your religion. Don't trust in your denomination. Don't trust in the fact that you made it to church on Christmas morning on a Sunday. Trust in Jesus because he's the only way to have this life that God wants us to have with him. So let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that makes so very clear to us that you are, in fact, the seed of the woman and you are the one who has crushed the head of Satan and will finally and fully do it in the future at which time we will enjoy life the way that you created it to be. And we long for that time. We long for uh, the time when, when you will even fix the creation. The creation itself will be the way that you want it to be. Not only will we live with you forever, but it will be in a place that is perfect. And we just pray for your will to be done in our lives. We pray that we would be faithful to you in the time that we have, that we would be your servants, and we pray for your protection over us as we do that. We thank you so much for the gift of Christ coming into this world to die for our sins. I thank you for the people who made it clear to me uh, so that I would trust in you. I thank you uh, for these people who are here, and I just pray that you would help us to make... (coughs) the gospel clear to people around us. And we just pray for your help in that. 
as we can do nothing in our own strength, but only in you. And I pray that you would do that work for us. And I just thank you so much for these people. I pray that you would bless them and keep them close to you. I pray that your face would shine upon each and every one of us as we go about our lives in this week to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas. Have a great day.